0: there's this belief I have that helping people get information in a way they understand is empowering and confidence-building and can change the world. Yeah. And I have an idea about how to help make that happen.
1: You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs. But there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman.
2: All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Jessica Yellen. How are you?
0: Hi, I'm so happy to be here.
2: Yeah, no, thank you for coming. So always have to start, you know, I just assume the day you're born, you get out, you start doing a newscast on the experience in the <laughs> hospital, or take me back, where are you from?
0: <laughs> I'm from Los Angeles. What? I am one of the rare natives. Yeah, yeah I have that in common. Really, where'd you grow up?
2: Born in West LA, then in Santa Monica till I was six, then moved up to Ojai for my childhood. Oh,
0: heaven. You had hippie parents. I love that. Yeah,
2: exactly. The
0: bionic woman was my hero growing up, and she was from Ojai. So you must have hung out with her. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I am also from, I was from the Hollywood Hills, like very Joan Didion. Then Santa Monica, Venice, lived on the boardwalk for a while, grew up like (laughs) roller skating on the boardwalk after school. And then I, but I always grew up in this family that was very serious about LA and investing Uh in your community. My dad helped renovate old buildings in downtown LA and save the city. But I grew up in this super do well, do good family where they (laughs) taught me you got to crush it professionally, but also give back to the world. So what are you, gonna do and that was always the frame of what success was for me
2: that's really cool and what was your mom working as well like what was or what she focused on
0: my mom was some interior design but mostly she worked in a lot of nonprofits where she worked on sort of um at-risk kids Uh and uh, an organization here that did was one of the first to develop rape response protocols yeah all-in-one kind of treatments yeah
2: so really, as you said, you really came over that get back. Were they from LA? Is that where their passion for helping L.A. came from?
0: No, my mom's from New York. My dad was from Boston, but I just grew up in a super, it was sort of the ethos of the households. Like my dad's hero was John F. Kennedy, the president, and yeah. was his personal page on the floor of the Democratic Convention when he was nominated oh. president, like he was very, you know, civic oriented. He voluntarily enlisted in the Marine Reserves right before Vietnam. Like, wow, he grew up thinking you got to give back, and yep. that's what we were taught.
2: Got it. And so, in, did you resist that at all, or were you right away like, I've got you know, loved what your parents stood for? No, him. there was.
0: There wasn't even a question. Like it was just the water I swam in. It was just. I mean, I do find it sort of weird today because sometimes I I write stories about journalists and pitch shows about journalists, and sometimes executives will say to me, "But why is she devoting so much to this journalism?" And I'll say, "Because she wants to give back." And they're like, "What does that mean?" And I'm like, "She wants to make a difference." And they're like, "But what motivates that? Like, is that such a hard
2: like?" Yeah. It's can it not be intrinsic? Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's just, what? Yeah, it's a weird moment where not everybody shares that. But when I was growing up, it was a very clearly defined value in my community.
2: Yeah, no, and it makes sense. And yeah, it's I just always question, like, I know a lot of, I feel like most people either follow in their parents and like idolize their parents and do a lot what they do or do the exact opposite.
0: Right. And in some ways I did that. Like, I went into media, which my dad thought was sort of, basically thought it was shallow and silly. Really? Okay. Yeah. So yeah.
2: So taking it back, growing up, like, where were your passions? You you were taught to give back, but like, were you passionate about speaking, interviewing, writing, or was it what were you into as a kid?
0: I wanted to be a writer. So having a voice was super important to me. But I thought I would be like I when I was way too young, I was reading Judith Cramps and Jackie Collins. That ages (laughs) me, but they were pulp fiction about. You know, it was sort of bodice ripping stuff, but the main theme in all the books are strong, empowered, professional women. And it's a weird thing because like all the other, you know, good literature you'd read at that time was about women who were wives and moms, very few working women, except in this odd pulp fiction. And so I idolized all these women in these books and, and that I thought I would write those, Mm -hmm. but you know, as I was growing up, I had a one sort of like one of those moments when you're a little kid where I was called on to speak in front of the whole school spontaneously in like second grade. And I, it was like very easy for me to do. And it went yeah. very And I realized, oh, I like that. So I think I got into public speaking as a result of that. Yep. And, you know, these like weird happenstance things happen, but no, I never thought I would be a journalist.
2: And so, I guess. So what age did you think the right? So second, was this second grade where you liked writing in first grade, you already were thinking about being a writer. Yes.
0: When people, wow. well, okay. when people asked me when I was little, what would you do when you, what are you going to do when you grow up? I said, I'd be a writer or a fashion designer. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So practical. Yeah.
2: And so then public speaking came a thing. And so how did that progress through your childhood? Did you just like, were you consistent with it that you still wanted to be a writer? Like at what point did that start to evolve?
0: Well, I was consistent, but as I got into high school, I got a lot of, my dad was a lawyer and he uh-huh. would take, I would write essays for school and he would make me have them ready like a day and a half before they were due. And he would take a red pencil to them and- uh-huh you know, make questions and comments and made me redo it and redo it and redo it. And that process kind of made writing slightly more problematic for me, like (laughs) less flow, more self-judgment and criticism around the process. But I still was like, I did creative writing through high school, but I was very engaged in politics. And so increasingly all that stuff seems sort of less captivating than actually getting involved in the world and taking part and, and you know, doing things for being an agent for change.
2: And so did something other than obviously your parents' desire to get back in that push, was there some political issue that got you sparked? Was there something that really engaged you in politics?
0: Well, when I was coming up, there was, it was the time when abortion first got problematized in America and there were all those clinic defenses where people were surrounding clinics and, Mm -hmm. and then there was like women's marches and that kind of stuff got me sort of, Aware of sort of political action, taking yourself and getting yourself involved in political action. But I was also like, my parents hosted fundraiser for Walter Mondale, like whoever was losing, they were having a fundraiser for him, <laughs> um, and they were just highly involved in Democratic politics in the state. And my dad was. As I mentioned, he was in real estate, but he renovated buildings in, like, blighted parts of Los Angeles, the Grand Central Market or the Bradbury Building, famous buildings. So he's very involved with politicians and city politics. And so we were always, there were always politicians in the house, and we always had conversations about politics at dinner, and we watched the evening news at dinner and then talked about it. And we sat with the New York times in the morning and talked about it from my earliest memory.
2: I always wonder that there's so many people talk about not bringing politics or religion to the dinner table. I'm like, why not? Like, that's the, like the the best conversations. Like you can really get in deep about how, like, frankly, like politics and within my family are very different amongst my entire family. But that conversation is actually, I think it's a lost art at these days. Like everyone's so polarizing. It's like, it's kind of nice to have those disagreements too.
0: I couldn't agree more. I think that, first of all, politics is what you stand for in the world and your yes. vision of a future, right? Yep. Like we, we problematize it as this awful concept and it, you say politics, you immediately think outrage, negativity, rage. Right. yeah. And that actually is literally what I exist to do now, which is correct that impression because I think that's how we've come to model political conversation in this country, but it is in no way essential to politics, right? Like we can have different points of view and still respect one another. We just don't know how to do that. Like we don't have the conversation tools for that anymore because that's not what we're modeled or taught. And I do think there's another way.
2: Yep. No, I think I've watched the progress. It really started, not started, but like what I I saw ramp up, like the Clinton era, the Bush era, Obama and Trump, like it got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse that it's like all about outrage versus like conversation about just different priorities and different views of how to make this a better place.
0: Absolutely. And I think we do this messed up thing, especially in TV news, where we model political conversation as combat, You, like we find the people who are most opposed. And I know for a fact, because I've been there, like they literally cast for that. If this person wants to agree, we're not gonna put them on, right? Like you have to only find the people who are gonna argue and then make them argue. And that's what political conversation is. I'm just gonna say, there's other models where you start off by saying, here's what we agree on. These This is the part we agree on. Let's engage on the stuff where we have different views. Yep. But by starting with your common ground, you build like empathy and connection and understanding. Yep. And then your discussion about disagreement is less hostile and hateful. Yep.
2: Exactly. Totally agree. All right. So you start to get into politics in high school. You're still creative writing, but your dad as a lawyer is giving you red lines constantly. Yes. And so what, did journalism spark? Like, were you doing the school newspaper at that point? Was there no. anything? Okay.
0: I never wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be in politics and I thought journalist, I wanted to be a politician or an activist or a polemicist. For a while, I just wanted to go write opinion essays and be an opinion, Uh you know, opinionator. But right out of college, I-
2: And where'd you go to college?
0: I went to Harvard. I was super politically active in college. Uh And then I graduated and my- I got an opportunity to intern in the white house at the Clinton white house. And I, I was either going to go to New York and get a job at a magazine writing, or I got this intern opportunity at the white house and I went to the white house. And as I was there, I, um, fresh out of college was like super wide eyed and of course had no reference points for what work was like. And I just thought, I noticed that all the people who were about policy and super substantive had like, the low status offices and less access and sat against the wall far away and all the yep. people who were like strategists and had the poll numbers and public opinion talked to the media were like super up close to the president and had all the access and like the voice and the power and I was like this is so messed up why is it like this and I In every room in the Clinton White House at that time, there was a TV in the corner of the room. And at that time, it was that big TV before we had flat screens. And there was only one 24-hour cable channel at that time. It was CNN. Uh And there were always two things that could stop everyone cold. I had an office in the West Wing. I I worked in an office in the West Wing at a desk there. And the two things that could freeze everyone cold were the president walking into the room or that TV... CNN that's on 24 seven talking about what's going on in the building. And I was like, those people have so much power. They can change our discussion and what we're doing. And I was so annoyed that in the TV news business or in the news business in general, they seem to be focused on silly things like the president's haircut or somebody taking a helicopter for a golf trip instead of a military, you know, and I was like, but we're working on the crime bill and welfare reform. They should be talking about that. And I decided, you know what I want to, if I get that job. I can talk about the policy stuff. So I decided I want to do that so that I can like shine a spotlight on what I think is important.
2: Nice. And so curious, how do you get an internship in the White House in the West Wing? How did that come to be? I mean, I know Harvard obviously
0: has some inroads,
2: but it's
0: relationships. Yeah. It's it's about having relationships and then also having like what, you know, when they say you have the opportunity, luck is opportunity meets preparation. So I also had the resume that said, yeah, that's a no brainer.
1: Yeah.
2: Got it. And what was on the resume? Like what kind of things were, I know you said you were active, but what were you doing during college that gave you that?
0: Oh my God. I, what did I do? I mean, I'd worked on political causes. I had spent a summer as an intern at CNN. I was, I'd founded organizations at school, you know, like.
2: Super active. Got it. Yeah
0: captured all the things you could.
2: <laughs> and did you think that was your goal? When did you realize the goal was to go work in the white house out of school or did you not know yet? As you said, yet? it wasn't,
0: it yeah. wasn't for me a goal, but it was more like this opportunity is here. Yeah, And you know, I even talked to people in the magazine business where I wanted to go work and they're like, wait, you have an opportunity to intern the white house. Go do that. You can come back yeah. here another time. Go do that. Yeah. And honestly, it was an amazing, I mean, it's an amazing experience. The White House is so not what you think it is. It is one of the most sort of magical and odd things about being inside the White House is it's tiny building with tiny spaces. And so it's like working in a mini, somebody's small, petite house. And so when you're even walking through the hallways and the stairs, you have to sometimes go sideways to let the other person pass. And it's very, so you feel like you're a little group, you know, together. Um, And it's also not majestic in the way people think like Buckingham Palace is majestic. And that's such a statement on democracy, right? Yeah, this is not where a king works. This is where an elected citizen works. Yeah. But having that experience, knowing what it's like inside those walls, having been in the rooms, really equipped me to come back as a White House correspondent and feel not intimidated. You're always a little intimate, but not too intimidated. Right. And ready yeah. to understand the thinking behind going on there.
2: Makes sense. And so how long were you there and wh- what happened next?
0: I guess I was an intern for like, I don't remember. It was like a year and a half, a okay. year, between one and two years. And then I got a job as, and that's when I decided like, my friends who are journalists seem to be having a lot of fun. All the people who are doing the media seem to be having fun. And I think I could do this thing where if I'm on, you know, in the news, I'll talk policy. So I decided to get a job as a journalist. And I came home and I got a job at Los Angeles Magazine at the front of the book as an editor, like, you know, associate editor for LA Magazine. Yep. Did that. And while I was there, people kept telling me, oh my gosh, TV's the future. TV's the future. You don't want to be in print. I should have been a print journalist. That would have been the path for me. But I listened, and I went into TV and I made a fake tape. I got a bunch of colorful business suits. I hired a camera guy and I made up like TV news stories the way people like an audition tape. And I got tons of copies. I got the book you're supposed to buy of every news director in America. And I just sent them out to all the news stations I could think of that would be relevant. And then I, this is the way you used to do it. you would call up the news directors and say, I'd like to, I sent you my tape. I'd like to come meet with you. And then you come in and cold meet all these people.
2: Yep. And so what happened?
0: I drove around and I got a lot of people who looked at my resume in small towns and said, Harvard and the White House, you're not a (laughs) fit for us. Or I got some hostile stuff that was like, oh, you must think, somebody said to me, you must think you're very smart. Wow. A news director in Palm Springs said, I don't hire blondes because blondes make stupid videos, but you could be my assistant. And I had a news director and in Fresno. Was, I mean, you're talking what late mid 90s? 90s. Mid late 90s? 90s. No, no, late 90s. Mid, yeah. Late 90s.
2: We're not and talking then, about the 60s or 50s here. Like <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. Okay.
0: This businesses and then there was a news director in Fresno who, which was a huge market for a starter market, put his legs up on the desk and said, "I could hire you, but I'm the only man in town to date. How does that strike you?" And I said, "Oh, I'm not worried about it. I'm pretty good at making friends," and left and came home dejected and uh, was did what many LA women do when they're dejected. I went to the hairdresser. And he was like, honey, you got to meet my next client. And his next client comes in and it's a guy named Robert Kovacic, who was an anchor on local LA news for a long time. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know what? I went to Brown. I'm not what people expect either. You can't go to news directors in small towns. You don't get it. You got to find somebody who is not intimidated by any of that. My old boss is starting a news channel in Orlando. Send me your tape and I'll send it to him. And this guy was starting Craig Hume. He was starting a uh, 24 hour cable channel. Do you know what New York one is? Mm-hmm. It was the New York one of central Florida. Got it. And uh, he was starting there and I did a, you know, long distance interview and they hired me and I think I might've flown in, but I anyway, took a job in Orlando mm-hmm. as a one man band reporter where I carried my own camera, shot my own video, edited it, uh-huh. wrote it, you know, all the things. Yeah. And that was my start. And did,
2: how did you know of, like editing video? Did you already have a skill set for that or did you just Gosh, figure it no. out? Yeah.
0: No, and I'm not the best editor, but they they taught me. Like day Maybe. 1 they yeah. show you how to hold a camera and how to white balance and how to make it not look blue and all those things and then yeah. you know, day 2 they show you how to edit, day 3 they give you a map because it was before Garmin's yeah. and iPhones <laughs> and say good luck.
2: That's amazing. Okay. And did you have like a path that like, were you wanting to go to see it back to CNN? Is that was that a path? Or were you like, I'm just going to go here, and then we'll figure it out next? Did you have a
0: clear? You know, I wanted vision? to become a White House correspondent. And yeah. I told everybody who would listen that that was my goal. And, you know, I often had the experience of talking to somebody who's like, you know, you're in Florida right now. <laughs> and, I would just, and I, this is the advice, part of the advice I give young people in this business or any other business, which is when you know what you want, be very clear about it. That doesn't mean only do that. You do what management asks you to do as long as it aligns with your integrity, yep. but let them know what your goal is. Yeah. Because I never would have gotten to the White House if I hadn't constantly told people I want to be at the White House.
2: I couldn't agree more. We try to tell that to our, even our own employees. It's like, hey, tell us what you want. Because god forbid we can actually help you get there it might not right. be today but like we might as well start working towards your dream and goals why not so yeah
0: it's important totally. the problem um, is when people are like i get plenty of people in the, who want to get into news and they're like i only want to anchor okay yeah. cool well like you know everybody only wants to be the starting pitcher but it doesn't yeah. always work that way <laughs> just yeah, start exactly. do the work yeah. but also let people know your goal
2: yeah and you you know it's not it's not going to be given to you you got to Figure out how to be a good anchor. That's mm-hmm. part of it too. So, how long were you in Orlando for? How long did that last? I was
0: in Orlando for 18 months. Okay. I'll tell you a quick funny story, which is yeah. um, my first day out, I wore a long green dress that had leaf print all over it. Mm-hmm. And I was doing some story about hurricanes and how you have to cut the trees for hurricane season. Yeah. And I put the camera at one end of the lawn and ran to the other end of the lawn and did my stand up. And I brought it back. And they're like, All you could see were trees. You could not see a human. (laughs) The next day, yeah, it was camouflage. The next day, they are like, you have to be closer to the camera, Jessica. So the next day I go out and I zoom in so close that all you see is the mic flag and my chest. (laughs) (laughs) Like, we really need to work on this. So it was all a learning experience.
2: Oh, yeah, which is good. I mean, that's, I think, you know, I talk to younger people all the time. It's like, spend your 20s, like, learning as much as possible. Like, just try things.
0: right. And I honestly am home now with an iPhone talking to an iPhone. Like I think I'm able to do that comfortably because I was a one-man band reporter to begin with, right? It's where I started. Yep. Anyway, so Orlando, I became the morning anchor. I did that. I was there for 18 months. Then I went to Tampa, which was a huge leap because they are a big market. Mm -hmm. I had a camera person. I learned a ton from the camera guys that i worked with they were all guys they were amazing mm-hmm. and that is the secret of the tv news business the cameramen know everything and women you got to trust them and learn from them
2: so what about like i'm curious what it, what do you mean by that is it just the, the angles and lighting it right that people get attention no. or, yeah
0: You'll be out and they'll be like, that person looks like they might have something to say. They just, they've done every story 10 times and they know. So they'll also be like, when you're learning, you know, I think we got it. Because one of the biggest things that people don't realize in journalism is part of the job is knowing what not to say and when to stop, right? It's curating, editing. And so I got big points early on because I didn't do EB. And I was like, what's EB? And they said extraneous bullshit. All these reporters come in and they do, they get all the sound bites in the first 10 minutes and talk for another 40. Yeah. And they're like, knowing when you got your bites, that's an art. And you learn that from them. And you also learn just sort of understanding how a story is moving, it's pacing. They just, they, they have their 10,000 hours. So learn to learn to respect what they're showing you.
2: Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense. All right. And so how long did you go to Tampa for?
0: Tampa was two years. And my big thing there was, I said, I want to cover politics. Mm -hmm. Whenever it's possible, would you let me? And they put me on, um, Bill Nelson was running for Senate as a Democrat and it was the year 2000. So they sent me to Tallahassee Democratic Party headquarters in Florida in the year 2000, which is when the Florida recount happened. Oh yeah. So election night, we declare... Al Gore has won. And then they take it back and say, uh, George Bush has won. And then they say, we don't know, Florida is outstanding. And that's us. And so they send us to the Secretary of State's office. And over the next 24 hours, it was like slow motion, all my news legends arriving in the same room I'm in. And I ended up covering the recount for a month, got great video and a lot of confidence from being able to do that. And Mm -hmm. from that, I used that tape and got Uh, my gig at first gig at MSNBC.
2: Got it. And uh, was there any point that you were having any doubts? Like, I don't know if I'm actually going to get to the White House. Or were you always like, no, this is working exactly as planned. Like, did you always feel on track?
0: Oh, God, no. No, I yeah. mean, there were so many times I'm, you know, working, I, my alarm went off at 2 a.m. in Tampa yeah. or, you know, Orlando to do the morning show. And my friends in New York are like dating Ethan Hawke and going out yeah. to, you know, whatever it was at the time, bungalow eight and partying yeah. and having so much fun and beach houses in summer. And I'm like completely isolated working these overnight crazy hours in a town where I I didn't only not know anyone. I didn't know anyone who knew anyone. Like it was before Facebook and networking and I was just solo operator. And so there were so many nights when I'm like, is this what I should be doing in my late twenties? Like, should I, you know, I had a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. You always do.
2: No, yeah. And I think that's everyone. And that's why I asked, but you never know. There's every once in a while you have that person that just had the vision and went for it and just, you know, tunnel vision. But
0: I also did that. Like all this other stuff was coming in and I was like, I'm sticking to this. And I did- I just, I don't know. I just was like, that's going to happen and I'm going to stay at this till it happens.
2: And where do you think that came from? I am curious because I think there are a lot of people that just go, you know, get your late twenties. You're like, you know what? I have other priorities. I'm done. I'm going to move back to New York and get a, you know, magazine job. Like what, what do you think got you to stick with it? Was it was just pure passion for it.
0: I mean, it, people ask me that now. I just, th- I think there's something I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah and I feel it inside. And so I keep going. And I don't always know what, how it'll manifest. But I know that there's this, this belief I have that helping people get information in a way they understand is empowering and confidence building and can change the world. And I have an idea about how to help make that happen. And I feel like I have to do that. I don't think I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I mean it yeah. in a—it's inside me. It just drives me. Yeah. And I'm not the only one. There's like a lot of people who feel this way. And when you do it, it's like a lighthouse. It draws those people, and together, I really find that community powerful and empowering, and it helps you move forward, even in those moments when you're like, "Uh, uh why did I do this?"
1: Yep.
2: No, it makes complete sense. And so you get the MSNBC job. And where is that? Where is that located?
0: So it was in Secaucus, New Jersey. I moved to New York and I got a terrible, terrible apartment, like horrifying <sighs> in Hell's Kitchen with like this creepy super who I think used to come into the apartment during the day and like smoke in there and hang out. And subsequently there was a building fire at that building and whatever it was like yeah. it was a bad place. But I would work, I was there and then I would um, take, I would go out to Secaucus at 10 at night. And I'd work the overnights. So I was on every half hour to do a news update, but then continuously when news broke. Got it. So the whole thing was when I was in Orlando, and I was at the 24 hour cable channel, I learned to talk on Mm -hmm. camera endlessly. And MS needed somebody available in case there was major breaking news overnight that they could trust to go on. And that's what we did. So we were there to just do news cut-ins, but when major news broke, you were on the spot and you just had to talk.
2: Yep. Got it. And so, and how long were you in that position for a year? And this was 2000, 2001.
0: Uh, yeah, it was 2000. I think it was right after nine 11. I think it was like 2002 to
2: 2003. Okay. Yeah. So it, it was after nine 11. Cause that would be right after nine 11. Yeah. Got it. So but still there were that year I feel like there was a lot of breaking news was, there was
0: I mean there was a shooting in a theater in Moscow, I think. And mm-hmm. then there was the DC sniper that went on for weeks. Yep. And then there was the first like big miners trapped underground. Yep. And then the Iraq war. So it was busy time. Yeah. I got on a lot.
2: And and so you did it for a year, and then what ended up progressing from there?
0: I had started a conversation with ABC News. Uh prior that I just kept going. One of those things where they're like, we'd love to keep an eye on you, stay in touch. And I did. And there was a point in time when ABC had some breaking news and none of their major anchors was close by to get on air quickly. And they decided on on a weekend, I think, and they decided they needed somebody to do standby duty on Friday and Saturday nights Mm -hmm. to be that anchor who can step in and breaking news and talk until a big anchor could get in. And since I'd been doing that, I was a good candidate for it and they hired me to do that so that I came into work Friday nights and worked overnight Friday into Saturday, Saturday into Sunday. And then I was pitching myself to Good Morning America and then I got on Good Morning America. So I would work five days a week on Good Morning America and weekends no. on the overnights.
2: Wow. N- n- not, not that lazy, are you? <laughs> it was a lot of work. <laughs> Sounds like it. But it was a
0: huge opportunity. Yeah. Know? What
2: time do you have to be at Good Morning America? 5 a.m.?
0: depends on the story depends where you are if you're yeah. on you know at the white house you have to be there at 6 5 45 6 if you're at you do your story the night before so it's ready to oh, go right. and you just update yeah. uh but if you're on the west coast it's 2 a.m yeah uh, you know
2: and you uh, and yeah because you're i was just saying in your hours because you're doing overnights then you're doing mornings. so you basically slept afternoons every day was that yeah got it so was it consistent at least like were you able to like you slept from two to eight there's,
0: there's no like did you have some good sleep habits was there it's just that's a living disaster this yeah. is not good there's <laughs> no healthy version of that
2: and I'm curious just because you know uh, frankly the first person I've interviewed that had that kind of a schedule did you have any form of like health and fitness uh, regimen like you're going on camera I assume you had to but
0: like, well the- I'm an exercise person so I yeah. always would you know I'd make a point of going to the gym every day or as often as I you know, as many days as I could. And my biggest thing was I have to leave the apartment every day. Got it. So the worst thing is that you can just be in the studio in the morning and then go home, go to sleep. And then it's dark by the time you wake up. Right. And if you can force yourself to get some sunlight, that's really important. Yeah. And as it so happened, one of my best friends from college was going through her medical residency at the same time and also working overnight. So we Mm -hmm. used to have this standing... Um, lunch date on Fridays where we would nice. make ourselves stay awake and have lunch on Fridays so that we feel social, like human. Yeah.
2: yeah. No, that's great though. It's those little things that taking being intentional about it help you get through this. So much. Events.
0: Yeah. And creating sort of rituals and force like connection, it's vital.
2: I'm also curious, because you, you know, you're giving me this track of like, you know, a year and a half here, two years here, one year here, et cetera. And a lot of vocations, like jumping around like that is frowned upon, so to speak. And is that common as you're trying to make your way up in the sort of anchor world?
0: I just, there's not a path, like there's everybody does their thing. If you can yeah. move fast, that's great. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. you want to keep, you have a goal, you want to get to the goal. So nice. now people don't do that as much, like start right. local, go national. They more break into the .com and get on camera that way or start their own yeah. thing. It's a little different, but at that time, like you go from, I did go from local to national quick, but cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so you got, now you're on, you've got morning show. You've got the evening side of NBC or ABC, excuse me. What, what happened next?
0: I was at, um, so I was at ABC and I was covering in this, all the like every tabloid scandal you could think of NBA player shoots his driver. I'm on the trial. A man chops up his wife into 17,000 pieces. I'm in Utah covering that, whatever the thing is, Martha Stewart goes to jail, whatever. And uh, after every assignment, I'd come home and they'd, I'd meet with the executives. How are you doing? How are you doing? Great. Great. I, would love to be White House correspondent. They're like, that's yeah. cool, but you're gonna yeah. go to Martha Stewart's jail booking. <laughs> okay, whatever. So one day, I get a call from one of the executives who says, Jessica, don't get excited. I was like, okay. And they're like, <laughs> we know how much you want to go to the White House, and this. Kate Snow, who was the White House correspondent at the time, got a promotion to be the Good Morning America anchor in New York for the weekends. And there's an opening at the White House. And do you want to go there? It's not your job. It's not for permanent, but you're going to fill in if you want to. So I was like, yep. When do you need me? I ended up at a hotel there for two weeks and then two weeks became a month and then a month became five months and then they let me stay. And so then I ended up covering, it was the second term of the Bush administration had just been reelected and it was sort of a rock surge, Katrina, that whole
2: moment. Yeah. Got it. And how long before they like replaced your other gigs that it's like, when did you realize you weren't temporarily there?
0: Oh, well, once I was in DC, I was, once I was in DC at the White House, that was my gig. Like that's a full-time thing. Right. Um, That's
2: what I mean. But how quickly did they say, because they said it was temporary. How quickly did it become? Oh,
0: it took five months.
2: It did. Okay. So they were still telling you like, we're still probably going to replace you. We're probably going to replace you. And finally, they're like, okay, it's yours.
0: I mean, it wasn't exact. It's not like they call you. It's just was not, it was all in limbo and I didn't know. And then one day they're like, ah, just, you know, get an apartment. So, and it was amazing. I had it. the people there, the team for ABC was awesome, you know, and I was in a booth every day with the such smart, able people and they had very like their, their protocols. And you know, they always say you should learn to be a classical painter before you're abstract, because mm-hmm. then, you know, and their sort of classical journalism, it was so careful and thorough and yeah. I just learned great habits from that. Yep.
2: And How was, I mean, was the experience everything you hoped for? Like, did it feel like you reached that pinnacle that you were hoping for? Oh,
0: nothing's ever what you think it is. But it was, I mean, it's super cool to be at the White House. You know, you get a hard pass, like the office holders, you walk in through the West Wing Gate, you know, it's the, I can't even remember now, the West Exact? I don't know. And you, you know, you walk down the North lawn and you walk right past the entrance to the West wing and go into that little building, the white little building, and where you watch those press briefings every day behind that is a Warren of cubicles. And you have an office a space there you, where you sit of? with your peeps and your yeah. network. And so it's kind of, it's very, you know, as everybody imagines that the white house press corps is very competitive with one another and you can be when it comes to breaking stories, but you're also the only people who are living this, cramped, intense, serious, high octane experience. And so it's a lot of bonding. That's awesome.
2: No, and there's something about that when you like, you're competitive, but the camaraderie is still there because you're still going through the same thing. We, in even my industry, like a lot of the CEOs that run competitive agencies, we go to dinner, we hang out, we talk because it's like, yeah, we might compete over these little things here and there, like you said, breaking a story, but we're still going through, we're in the trenches. Like we both are, we're not head and head. Like that's not how this usually works. And life. Right. So, and who
0: else gets it exactly. as well as somebody else doing your same thing. Yeah. Yep.
2: You even see it with athletes where they're playing on Probably. the other team. And yeah, when you're on the court, we're going head to head, but off the court, we let's hang out. We're both going through the same thing. Yeah. So no, that's great. And so how long were you with ABC at the white house for?
0: I was at ABC. I think it was four years. And okay. then I think I was at the white house from, it was 2004 through 2007. Part of the year to part of the, I can't remember the exact dates.
2: Yeah, got it. So you were there during that, as you said, the second term of Bush. And did you decide you got that fill? You wanted to leave? What happened after that?
0: I just saw that it was super, it was, you know, everybody wants to be at the network. And at those days, especially the network had more prestige than being on cable. But I just really liked, you know, the original idea was that CNN TV in the, you know, corner of the White House. And i interned at CNN. And for me, I just so much, you know, I I actually should have mentioned this before. So much of my consciousness about the world was shaped around the Tiananmen Square protests and and the way it, it was covered. And my dad kept saying these kids would be dead if the media weren't there. The media is keeping them alive because the world's eyes are on this. They're still alive. And he's like, that's the power of the media. And that stayed in my head. And that was CNN. So for me, I always thought of CNN as a national treasure. And frankly, no matter what criticism anybody might level, I still do. Uh Um, Their capabilities and the power of their journalism is Mm -hmm. unmatched, I think. Maybe the BBC, you know, very few parallels to them. And so when I had the opportunity to do that, it was irresistible.
2: Yeah.
0: I went there and became Capitol Hill correspondent with Dana Bash. She was, Mm -hmm. she's covering it. She just owns Capitol Hill. She's amazing. But I was the, there were two on the Hill and I was the other correspondent. And then I had this experience where everybody was like, listen, we want to give you the presidential elections gearing up. We want to give you a taste of Iowa but you're brand new here. Like it had been two months and, and or three, whatever. And, you know, like the big candidates are going to go to our main people, but we're going to give you somebody to give you a taste of what it's like. He might not be in the race that long Barack Obama. <laughs> Which is how this but
2: I love how that works though. I mean, listen, it happened with our last election, or not Biden, but with right. Trump too, where everyone's like, yeah, that guy, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then- Cut to. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> All right. So you end up- So you end up being the person assigned to Obama for CNN? In
0: Iowa, yeah. Yeah. And so I covered all, you know, and I'll never forget, you know, I was walking into a, all you do when you're in Iowa is you're there for more than a month, living in the Uh same hotel with all the other press, and you drive all over the state going to campaign events. Uh And so you really get a sense of what the campaign is like, and you, they make sure you see different campaigns. You're not only on your person all the time to compare, but you really get a feeling of what's going on in the state. And I remember one day I'm going into some school where Obama's about to show up and have a big event. And there's this grandpa looking guy, looks like Santa Claus, wearing long white beard overalls. And he's surrounded by younger kids. And we always do this. You interview people on the way in, you track them during the thing, and you ask them on the way out, what do you think? And on the way in, he's like, I don't know. My kids want me to go see some celebrity. I'm going because my grandkids want it. And he's like, that's his vibe. keep the camera trained on him during the event by the end he's standing up doing the wave (laughs) he's doing the wave signs up to be one of the community people helping to get people out to vote for obama and is like over the moon right wow i haven't felt this way since kennedy blah 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 so i call back and i'm like i think something's going on here you know i'm telling people and everybody in dc all over, you know, nobody under they're like, Oh, people in Iowa get excited. And I'm like, No, 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 I think there's like something happening. That was super early. And you were
2: also new, so you're like, yeah, it's your first time in Iowa, I'm like, sure.
0: But nobody knew. Nobody, yeah. I mean, it was Hillary's election, you know? Yeah. So it was um such a learning experience and really a wild, you know, ride to be on. And
2: so, as a witness, what what do you think was a, it was about Obama that won like what well, you know? I think there's a lot of like what you'd hypothesize or even pontificate on in terms of like post-election, et cetera. But being there, what do you think it was? Was it just charisma that really drove
0: I could go on, but I mean, I think that it was a combination of the moment we wanted a stark change. It was a change election and he posed the, he stood for change more broadly than she did. Not only, and I don't mean that because of his identity, but also his message was clean and clear. Hope, her message was, I have the experience to bring change. No, no. You have experience, which is past or change. Like there were all these things, but also you, this is something that gets lost and you don't see it as much. His ground operation, the effectiveness of his actual campaign, yeah. was exceptional. I mean, I've covered campaigns since; it's it's unmatched. He, they, they came off. They were consistent. They were on time. They were organized. They knew who their voters were. They were strategic with them. It was all the things. And then they had a strategy for which states to focus on. How that was that worked. They understood yep. the value of caucuses at a time other people weren't like. All the things, they had all the pieces and they executed beautifully. If a campaign is a startup, they had just like an A-plus startup. Got it. Plus makes- the magic of him, right? Yeah.
2: No, of course. The charisma definitely lends itself to it too. And so you get out of that. Obama obviously has his rise, so to speak. How did that place you? Did they have you so stay on I
0: I covered, um, no, at that point they made everybody, like everybody rotated. Sometimes you got Hillary, sometimes you got John Edwards, and then sometimes, you know, in the thing you cover Romney, just so you want to see what's going on. But yeah, so I developed relationships. And then after that, I became chief national correspondent, but I still was covering Obama and Obama officials. Like that was basically what I did. And then Ed Henry went to Fox and I had an opportunity and I got the chief white house correspondent job and i covered obama before was i was covering that, him and then i got the title
2: and so was that title was it a similar job to what you did at abc or was it different than what well you
0: it was i was the person like the chief the i was the main person so that got i it. when i was at abc i was the junior person got it so this meant you know i was in the press conferences and yeah. All the, the things. Yeah.
2: Yep. Got it. The, when you're having the, everyone's yelling at the same time in the room and trying to get the president's attention. Yeah, we,
0: we trade like the other reporters also did it, you know, yeah. but it yep. meant that I was, when, you know, you have a little more latitude.
2: Yep. Got it. And so how long did you hold that position with CNN?
0: I think it was, I mean, I don't even remember. I can so about, tell you. Well, about what time a did few you do it was, f- it was a it was year yeah. a few years, and then I kind of was like, it's time for something different mm-hmm. and i was you know, I had covered politics, I had covered the administration for the entire first term without the title, mm-hmm. and then I got the title and was doing it, and I thought, I have three blackberries i have um I don't own a home, I don't have a boyfriend, I work all the time, and is this what I want? to be doing with my life every day. yeah. And I had that, you know, sort of like assessment moment that a lot of people have, but especially women. And at a certain age where you're thinking, like, is this really the, what I'm called to do? Mm-hmm. And I decided I wanted to do something different. I had this thesis that there was a way to tell news differently. I wanted to see if I could do that inside an organization. Mm-hmm. Was there a place or a network that wanted that the way I was explaining it? And when it became clear to me that I couldn't do that inside the system, yeah. I and that I didn't want to do the things that the system wanted me to do, and I wasn't holistically living the kind of life I wanted. It wasn't, you know, it was all the things. I, I decided to move. And uh, Gloria Borger said
2: will appear, and, the net will appear. Like it. <laughs> and what year was that when you took that, that was um
0: gosh you're asking me all these like i don't know it was like 2014 i think okay. or something i don't know yeah
2: got it and all right. So you take this leap and what, what did you create? What was, where'd you go from there?
0: I, first I went to Bali and uh, decompressed and learned yep. how to meditate and sort of like rejiggered my diet and my life and all the things. Mm-hmm. I cannot recommend Bali highly enough. It is a cliche for a reason. Have you been?
2: Yeah. I have not. My wife has been magic and I keep meaning to. Yeah. Go I've to heard the it's jungle,
0: amazing. not yeah. the beach. I mean, or go yeah. to the beach, but don't skip the jungle. It's yeah transcendent. There's,
2: those,
0: there's a quality of um, presence there where you just feel super in the moment all the time.
2: Which is amazing. I mean, especially when you've been running like you had, like just taking a break and breathing and meditating. Like that's, yeah, what that can do to reset you.
0: It was so important. Like, yeah. And there are people who are like, oh, you're quitting, go to Bali. What are you doing? And I was like, guys, this is amazing. I'm so glad. <laughs> I said, I remember the first two days I got there, I couldn't like I was, I couldn't relax. Yeah, it's hard. It
2: takes a few days to like just- I finally,
0: I was on my phone the whole time. So I went <sighs> to the front desk and I said, can I give you my phone? Would you just hold it? And I said, I might check out early, but cause I was supposed to be there for a few weeks. Um, and I said, I might check out tomorrow. And then I came back to the room, went to sleep and woke up more than 24 hours later. Yep. <laughs> and didn't touch my phone for like a week or whatever.
2: Perfect. And so it's funny, we have a little in line there. Like before I started this company, I took, it was a week, but I just, I had no idea what I want to do. I just went to Mexico for a week and was like, all right, I got to go figure something out. And you Um, can
0: only do it by getting really quiet and you know.
2: Yeah, no, it's super helpful. So, but you did have a vision of what you want to do, right? You just were taking a break before you went for it.
0: I had a vision of what, like the thesis, I didn't know what form it would take.
2: And what was the thesis?
0: Well, first I wanted to write a book. So I wrote a novel about a young woman in the news business who is trying to do her best work and comes across all the craziness. Yeah. Um, I call it, it's about reporting while female, but it's funny. It's a satire. One of the crazy things about the book is people are like, this is very broad. And you're like, no, no, it's a documentary. You don't understand. Uh, So that and... For anybody who takes that out of context, that was a joke, but you get the idea. And uh, then I wanted to do something different in the news space. It originally started, and and again, my thesis was we're always, every election cycle, I, as a political reporter, was chasing swing voters, right? They'll decide the election. Overwhelmingly, they're female, And so we would be out talking to these so-called soccer moms, Walmart moms, NASCAR, whatever. And the attitude in DC is always like, they just don't care about politics. And that's why they can't make their decision to the end. They're not, they're tuned out. And you could see, I mean, there's papers written on this. They're so busy because they have to do groceries and kids and it's too much for them. But I'd be out talking to them, interviewing them. And they knew a lot. And they'd show me, like, I've clipped this article, I've read that, I've read that, but I don't understand who's going to raise, who's going to get health insurance and who's not. Yeah. What was happening is they cared enormously, but they didn't like the way we were providing them information. They couldn't hear it. Yeah. And I kept saying, like, there has to be another way we can present for this audience. Like, what I'm really good at explaining the thing, whatever the thing is, I can make you get it. And that's not the news, right? Like, the news is what's happening right now. Yeah. And I was like, but look at the internet. Like the things that perform the best on the internet are discovery videos and explainers. Like, yeah. why are yeah. we not doing that? And I couldn't ever find the space. So I knew that that's what I wanted to be able to do in some way.
2: Got it. Just break it down to be the, the way we want to consume information on politi- politics and actually creating an environment to digest it that way.
0: Providing information that's understandable in a way that leaves you feeling good. So my goal is not, it's not only politics, but I think a big problem with the news is the way it makes you feel turns Mm -hmm. off a huge part of the audience. And the misunderstanding, the wrong understanding of that is news is bad and scary, therefore it makes people feel bad. No, people can handle bad and scary. What What they reject, a lot of the audience rejects is the negativity, the outrage, the rage, the thing we started off talking about.
2: Exactly, the combativeness.
0: If you present that same thing without a conflict frame, but just like compassion, empathy, enlightenment, curiosity, you capture a huge part of the audience that's turned off by the screaming pundit panels. And they actually feel good because they know what they're talking about. So they'll pick up the next article, read it the next time, have a conversation about it, and then feel like a badass cuz they held their exactly. own yeah. and come back for more.
2: And they're informed. People want to be informed. They want to know what's going yes. on, but they don't they don't want to be yelled at. <laughs> right. And yeah.
0: Now some people do. No, totally. They're-
2: Listen, the ratings speak for themselves. Like there's a reason that the, you know, bigger channels have gone this way. But I think you're right. There's an audience that doesn't.
0: Right. And I kind of think of it as bro culture media. Like yeah. there's an audience for bro culture media and it includes people who aren't guys, right? Like there's some right. women, there's no. some gender fluid people, whatever who want that, no. but there's no. a large audience that doesn't, and there's not enough for them.
1: Right.
2: Nope. hundred percent agree. And so you created it. So you went, went down and started this, right?
0: So my first thing is I'm from LA. I'm back home to write a no. book. I'm going to go around Hollywood and pitch this. And I pitched no. the idea of like, news that makes you feel good, news that keeps you calm, not happy. And I just got a lot of, oh no, we can't touch politics. We can't touch news. That's dangerous. That's scary. That won't blah. We can't, we can't. And so I ended up, I was, a bunch of my friends were like, just do your own thing. And I was like, what does that even mean? And they kept telling me, they kept telling me, just do your own thing on your phone. And one day I was at lunch with a friend of mine who's done startups, and she asked me about Congress. And then she's like, you need to start your own thing. I was like, but what literally, like, what would you want me to even say? Yeah. And she's like, you just explained to me why this thing is going to get through Congress, even though everybody's acting like it won't pick yeah. up your phone and tell your phone that. Yeah. So I did. And that's how it started.
2: Got it. And so how quickly did it take off and start? getting an audience was it that first video explaining why I would get to congress? No, or? I'll
0: tell you the first video is no longer on my phone because I I went outside and I shot it out going back I was like against the trees yeah. and <laughs> nice. I posted it and like those four people who'd been urging me to start my like do it were like this is amazing yay you did yeah. it maybe you want to go indoors next time it looks like you're in a jungle. So <laughs> there are some like iterative iterative processes there. Yeah. And somebody asked me like, how did you do it in the first days? And I said, like, I wanted to die. You know, you feel, I used to be on the white house lawn with a cameraman, yeah. someone in my ear and like all the things and lights and all these people. And now I'm like at home talking to my phone. This is yeah. what has happened. But you post it. I said to somebody, I posted it and I didn't die. So I did it again.
1: Yeah.
0: And um, what happened? Okay. I met Jessica Seinfeld through a friend, Mm -hmm. Jessica Seinfeld started following it and posted one of my videos telling her audience to follow. She Mm -hmm. has like a crazy rabid audience. And I jumped to like, from like 700 or 1,000 to 8,000 followers. Mm -hmm. And then Amy Schumer is a friend of Jessica Seinfeld and follows Jessica Seinfeld. And like whatever was connection, whatever. And Amy Schumer one day says, um, calls me up before the 2018 midterm and says, I, I I, know this is noise, but I'm pregnant, and I want to announce my pregnancy, and do you want to do it on your Instagram? And so she actually, what she did is she said, an election is coming up. I'm voting. Here's who I'm voting for. Who are you voting for? OPS, oh, I'm pregnant. <laughs> and then, so she used it as a call to action to get out the vote, and yeah. posted a thing on her, and it went global, and that's what really got me eyeballs. So, As a result of that, I grew to like 60,000 followers, and then I got a quadrillion celebrities following, and then they all started reposting and reposting, and then it just organically grew.
2: Awesome. And so, and at this point, you're like half a million followers, right? Just over? Yeah. 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 And so- what do you want? I guess, frankly, we're almost coming up on time. I want to end with two questions, but this is the main one is what's next now that you've gotten to here, what do you want to do with this?
0: I want to, I mean, I'm exploring really what scale looks like, but yeah. it's definitely more products. Like I'm, we've started a newsletter. We started a podcast, um, the newsletter I love doing because it's so especially collaborative and print and yeah. the podcast has been fun. And so We're putting it on more platforms in more ways Mm -hmm. and bringing in more voices so that, you know, there's people like during COVID, I had regular doctors who would come on doing that in other spaces with additional people. But it really
2: is about distilling information that's out there to make it easy to understand. Is that the gist of it?
0: It's both. It's information that empowers you because yeah, and so it's basically it's distilling it, but it's also... It's helping you determine what matters and what doesn't, Mm -hmm. what it means and how it impacts your life. So providing you information from which you can make decisions. And that applies in finance. It applies in parenting. It applies in any space in your life. If we tell you what information matters and what it means to your life, you can make decisions.
2: Yep. And I think that is what a lot of our country has lost recently, which is part of the issue.
0: (laughs) I mean, that just to go back to the do well, do good thing. Like to me, that's the mission. And I get so corny about this, but. No,
2: please. It's a good one. The U.S.
0: Constitution protects one private business in America, only one, the free press. Yeah. Why do they protect the press? Because the press exists to inform voters in an electorate so that we can make informed decisions and vote. And if we are not doing that we are not upholding our democracy. And the more no. we can do that, the more we're supporting democracy. And I really think there it's a business, but it's a mission. And I will tell you like the proudest thing of all of this is we got 30,000 people who said they hadn't voted before to vote in the last cycle because of news, wow. not noise. And more than 300,000 said they drove people to polls, got friends to register all these things because they felt like they understood and they cared and it was their election to make a difference in.
2: Yep, no, and that's, I mean, democracy relies on a well-informed populace and you, you need to have that. So creating that, and I you know, I think, as you mentioned, like a lot of this combative style media makes people, a lot of people tune out and go, I don't even want to hear this. Like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not angry at the other side, so to speak. So like, I, this doesn't relate to me. And I think we mm-hmm. actually have, I think more people than either takes account for feel that way.
0: I agree. Uh, and they want ways to, un- like, they just want to, f- I can't tell you how many people say to me, I know what I believe, but I don't know how to back it up. Yeah. Like when they tell me this, what do I say? Yeah. And I just, it's because it's not clear. And so if yeah. you just clearly provide the facts, the information, and anyway, you get it. And, yeah. and there's, an, there's, it's both, there's, it's a market for it, but it's important. And I, yeah. I just hope more people start providing news that way.
2: Me too, and thank you for starting it. So last question for you. If you're talking to either your former younger self or someone really trying to achieve their dreams and go for it, what would be one piece of advice you either wish you heard or you did hear that really helped you along the way?
0: You know, my dad always said, be true to yourself. And I said to you earlier that my advice is, you know, speak up for what you want. But the piece of that that no one said, and that is actually the hardest is take time to understand what it is you want.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it might not be the thing that first comes to mind because some of us grow up in environments where we're told what we want and it's a constant gut check. Decide yep. what you want and then reassess and you can change and shift.
2: Yep, couldn't agree more. Well, Jessica, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk.
0: Thank you for having me. This has been a of treat. Course. Hawk
1: Media is your outsource CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free. Identify opportunities in your marketing strategy. Then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com.